Welcome to A Better Future for All in conversation with Kerry O'Brien, presented by Griffith University and Hodder, home of the arts on the Gold Coast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. My name's Carolyn Evans. I'm the Vice-Chancellor and President of Griffith University. Hodder and Griffith proudly acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet tonight, the family, the Kumamberi families of the Yugambeh language region, and we repay our respects to elders past and present and recognise their continuing connections to the lands, waters and extended communities throughout southeast Queensland. I'm so delighted to welcome you here in person to another edition of A Better Future for All, Griffith and Hotter's series of important conversations hosted by Australian journalism great Kerry O'Brien. This month, we're privileged to have as our guest Dr Dinesh Palapana. Dinesh is one of those very smart, overachieving people who's qualified as both a lawyer and a doctor. He is a Griffith alumni, having completed his Doctor of Medicine with the university in 2016, and as you'll hear, remains an active and engaged part of the Griffith community. What makes, Griffith, what makes Dinesh's story remarkable is the circumstances surrounding his path to graduation. While studying for his degree in 2010, he was involved in a serious accident that left him without feeling or movement below his chest. Tonight he's going to share more of that story with us and how he faced down adversity to become a leader not just here in the Gold Coast but indeed across Queensland and Australia. Dinesh has become a tireless and dedicated advocate and activist for people with disabilities while continuing to achieve highly in his professional activities. He's the co-founder of Doctors with Disabilities Australia, an organisation that works in tandem with the Australian Medical Association to improve access to education and employment for medical professionals with disabilities. You might hear a bit more tonight about how that's not straightforward. He's also appeared at a range of high-profile events, including as a speaker at Thought Leadership Expo TEDx and as the culturally and linguistically diverse senior advisor to the Disability Royal Commission. Just five years after graduating, he has become a senior resident doctor at the Gold Coast University Hospital and was recently also made a senior lecturer at Griffith School of Medicine and Dentistry. He also works as team doctor for the Gold Coast Titans Physical Disability Rugby League team. In addition to these commitments, Dinesh serves an adjunct research fellow at Griffith's Menzies Health Institute, Queensland, where he is the co-lead researcher on the groundbreaking Biospine Physical Rehabilitation Project. This project uses electronic muscle stimulation and a brain-connected computer interface to help restore motor function for patients with spinal cord injury, hopefully over time increasing function and maybe one day seeing them walk again. Given his history, I'm sure none of you will be surprised to hear Dinesh has won several awards over the years, having been recognised both nationally and globally for his work as a doctor and advocate. In 2019, alongside accolades including being the winner of the Global Henry Biscardi Achievement Award and earning the title Junior Doctor of the Year, Dinesh was recipient of the Medal of the Order of Australia. This year, we're very proud to say he was named as Queensland's own Australian of the Year. On top of all of that, he's just a great bloke, down-to-earth, <laughs> humble, funny, smart uh, and good company. I know that you are going to enjoy tonight's discussion Kerry, over to you. Vanessa, I've wondered more than once what it must be like for a person in full health with the promise of a big future ahead of them and stretching out before them, who suddenly has had that promise snatched from them. Independence becomes dependence. Their whole life crashes around their ears. You'd already graduated in law and were well on the way to becoming a doctor when your car spun out of control on Brisbane's Gateway Bridge. You work in intensive care in a Brisbane hospital quadriplegic for life. You felt like you'd been cut off at the chest, you said, 
and when you tried to sleep, you felt the awful sensation of falling. How long did it take you to find hope? I think um, in this world, we're so quick to take away hope from people. And I see it in the practice of medicine all the time. But hope is really all you have. Hope is what keeps you going. Hope is what helps you hang on uh, for a better tomorrow, for a better life. Interestingly, that hope came immediately after the accident. I was in the ambulance and there was a doctor who had actually given me a lecture not long before uh, I had the crash. And I was talking to him and I connected with him because I said, you actually taught me. And he, uh, he said to me that um, everything will be okay. He made me feel safe. And uh, he said that I was in good hands. And I knew, I knew that he was a capable doctor. But he gave me hope, which was really important. And all these years later, I'm telling you about that. And I think that's a really powerful impact that he's made on me. And uh, I think people, people don't often remember what you do for them, but you, they remember how you make them feel. And that's what he taught me about medicine. So I was lucky enough to have someone at that point in time that gave me hope. And there were moments along the way where I just had to renew that hope and keep going. You've said that you couldn't look in a mirror for a long time. What were you avoiding? What didn't you want to see? Well, I'm a pretty vain guy, Kerry. It's, uh... <laughs> Not much room for vanity at that point. Yeah. Uh, I didn't actually realise this uh, or reflect on it until last year when I was called up by the children's hospital uh, about a little one who had a spinal cord injury. And I went to visit them and their mum told me that uh, this little kid just refused to look in the mirror for the longest time. And then I thought back and realised that I didn't look in a mirror for a year or two. Wow. I look in the mirror all the time now. <laughs> so. I want to ask uh, but, what you see. Yeah, I like it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think... I think it's difficult coming to terms with a new physical self. I think it's difficult seeing yourself in a different form because when you see yourself, you have to accept what life has become and how your life has changed. And I think for a long time, I didn't want to accept that. So it, it, it took a while because looking in the mirror was a reminder to myself about what had happened. When you think now about what it took to climb out of the morass that you were in and create a new life. What is it that you think you drew on? You've talked about the doctor and there would have been other people around you, but inside you, was it the essence of courage? Was it some kind of irrepressible optimism? Was it stubbornness? Was it a combination of all of these things? What was it? I think you draw on different things at different times to keep going. It was hard. When I woke up in the intensive care unit, just coming to terms with what had happened, I, like I said, I, 
felt like my body was cut off below the chest. I couldn't sleep because I felt like I was falling. I had to ask for drugs all the time just to fall asleep. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't talk, sit, breathe, eat. Actually, the hospital ran out of flavoured jelly. <laughs> so they had the tasteless, uh, tasteless thickened fluid, which I, I got really frustrated with. Um, but eventually I could eat and I got a steak from the pub across the road. But all those things, it was, it was really hard and um, small things get to you as well. So at different times, I think you just have to draw on different bits of strength. I remember looking outside the window once after I left the ICU and just not knowing when I would be outside again. And I just remember that feeling because it was such a sinking feeling. I love being outside. Uh, all the things you would have associated with being outside, all of the physical things. Exactly. But, uh, and then at a point in time, there was a group of us, uh, four, four of us in one, uh, one area in the hospital, and we all had spinal cord injuries. And there was a... Um, there was a man who was probably in his 40s or 50s. He had a family. And I remember him so well because his wife used to bring me fresh towels in the morning. And she used to say hello, and we had a chat. He was from uh, North Queensland somewhere. And one afternoon, uh, we were all back in bed after the day's therapies and everything. I had some friends there, and then suddenly some alarms went off. And uh, he died in front of our eyes. And, you know, for those heart-wrenching moments, you just have to draw on whatever strength you have to keep going. Mm. And uh, sometimes you just got to dig deep. And I don't know, I don't know what it was, but you just either give up or keep going. And uh, I just had to choose to keep going. Uh, even before the accident, when you were a law student, you suffered from depression and agoraphobia. You wouldn't leave your home for weeks at a time. What lifted you out of that condition? And did you ever get to the bottom of what caused it? Yeah, I often reflect on that uh, experience because now I have a spinal cord injury and uh, I have lost motor function below the chest and in my fingers. And you could say that I have paralysis the funny thing is the depression and that experience was far more paralyzing than the spinal cord injury has been. Because like you said, I didn't leave the house. I didn't engage with the community. I lost friends. I couldn't hold down a job. I suffered at university. So all these things became a problem. And I think um, that that's really the, the significance of mental health issues, which we talk about mm. more and more in society these days. But sometimes I think those things, while there is a biological component to it, it's also a signpost, at least for me, it was to adjust my sails a bit and rethink life. I didn't really have a good reason for a lot of the things I was doing at the time, uh, whether it was law school, some of the friendships that I had, um, some of the activities that I engaged in. And so uh, I did a lot of soul searching and uh, that's when I decided to become a doctor. 
because I realized the power of doing something for another human being at that level. When I uh, started seeing a doctor and I started interacting with the health system, and when I started turning a corner with the depression, my entire world changed. And so I thought, what if I could do that for someone? Mm. And there was a purity that I saw in the practice of medicine because really it can transcend a lot of the things that we have. It can transcend our prejudices. It can transcend our borders. It can transcend all these things and you can go to someone and do something for them with what you have in your brain. Mm. So I decided that's what I wanted to do. And once I changed my sails and started heading in a different direction, my entire life changed and I became a new person. And uh, I think that was what helped me get out of that experience. Did any sign that the depression has come back since? One would think that, <laughs> that if, you had, if you had that tendency, if you were prone to that, mm. boy, you sure had the reason to be depressed after the accident. Yeah, and I, I, I thought I would be too, but uh, I haven't felt that low and I haven't had panic attacks like that. I've been anxious like that ever since then. I wondered when, when we were talking about this and then we talked about your, your childhood, your early childhood, growing up in Sri Lanka, which was war-torn. It was mm. uh, an earlier stage of the, of the civil war that was to last for 25 bloody years. There was a communist insurrection that was also brutal uh, in terms of what was going on on both sides. And as a young boy, you were witnessing that on the streets of Sri Lanka. <coughs> Can you talk about that for just a moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the funny thing is I've spoken about these experiences before and I've had some very stern talkings too from people in Sri Lanka about mentioning these experiences. But I think it really happened and it's a part of history and I think we have to learn from it. But one of the most striking memories that I have, and for a long time I didn't actually think this happened I thought it was a dream, maybe something I saw on TV. But a few years ago, I talked to my mom. Because it's something that was just uh, transient, and it uh, came to my head. And then it was a memory of me, mom, and dad driving down the road. And uh, we saw piles of tires on the side of the road, and they, were, they had smoke coming out of it. They were, they were on fire. And as we got close to them... Um, we realised, or at least I saw, bodies inside. And this was a way that um, they punished people at the time. They used to burn, burn people in piles of tyres. So I asked Mum this, and uh, she said, yeah, you, you actually saw that, and we were there. So it was a real memory. And funnily enough, this morning, I was uh, talking to her about it again. I was like, Did, I can't believe that really happened, because it feels like a dream. And then she, we talked about it a bit more and she said, I wonder if you remember what you saw after that, after we passed the tyres. And I said, I can't. And she said, well, their, their bodies were actually beheaded and their heads were on stakes uh, lined up along the road after the tyres. And um, where we lived, there were... Mum said that there was a stage and... Uh, they used to execute a lot of the young people that were involved in, uh, you know, whatever views that they had. 
So there was a great deal of violence and suffering. Which must have impacted in ways that you will never know, I suspect. Your mother has clearly been the dominant influence and support in your life, the driving force in the family decision to leave Sri Lanka for a safer life in Australia and in supporting you, particularly since the accident. Tell me about your mother and her part in your recovery. Yeah, I call her the mothership. So uh, she's, uh, she's, she's taught me so much, you know, when I was uh, growing up, she was, the, she was really the one who drove our move to Australia. She was the one who uh, went around to school. She was the one who taught me how to shave. She's the one who taught me how to drive. Interestingly, in our first driving lesson, I got into the car and we started driving and she's like, how do you know how to use my car so well? <laughs> it was because when she went to work, I used to drive it around the block. Uh, but um, she's taught me so much. And over the last uh, few years in particular, she's taught me about strength and courage and persistence and love and patience. So she has really, she, she's, she's been amazing. But um, I think she's also shaped my views on gender and some of the conversations that we have in society about that these days. Yeah. In hospital, you also had the support of, of friends, but one friend in particular who left the words of a poem pinned to the curtain in your room as you lay there somewhere between hope and despair. And I'd like, to, I'd like you to read the words of that poem to us. So the poem my friend uh, hung up, it was, uh, it was on the curtains. It was pretty dirty curtains, actually, but she just printed out this poem and uh, pinned it to the curtain where I could see it every day, all the time. And the poem is Invictus. And the poem goes, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Pretty potent. So what impact did that have on you? What, what, did it have the desired effect? Definitely. It had the desired effect. I think Invictus means undefeated. And I was reminded every day not to bow down to what happened. I was reminded every day that I could choose how I feel and I could still choose my destiny and what my soul feels. And uh, that, that has really been cemented in my person to today and it's definitely held me in good stead. I'm going to pursue that a little bit later. In fact, we're probably pursuing it all the way through this conversation. After, after a great deal of what I imagine must have been gruelling 
physiotherapy and, and, and the mental stresses and the, and the mental battles, um, you then had to be accepted back into medical school and ultimately accepted as a doctor. You've since said it's not physical incapacity that threatens to stop people, it's the attitude of other people. So how did that apply to you? <clears throat> so I was lucky enough to have people in my life, if we're talking professionally and my career, I was lucky enough to have people in my life that really uh, thought that it was worth trying, thought that it was worth giving this a go and thought that it was the right thing to go. So there were people with a strong moral compass and it was people that were willing to take a personal and professional risk to do that. And I think when we think about a lot of challenges that we face in society, that's the kind of people that we need, right? We need people that believe in the right thing and that will take the risk to do that. So I had people like that in uh, the medical school at the university that uh, overwhelmingly um, fought against the odds and made sure that I came back and helped me in so many different ways. Uh, but the structure was not so supportive at the time. There was a policy that came out for medical schools across Australia and New Zealand that looked at excluding medical students with disabilities from studying medicine. And I saw one of the emails circulating by one of that committee members, and it said that uh, this should allow us the legal protection to exclude someone with a disability from studying medicine. Must have that legal protection. Got to have the legal protection. Yeah, those lawyers, right? <laughs> um, so that, that felt like a very... Uh, felt like a knife to the heart, actually, because to, uh, to be discriminated against for something that you cannot change about yourself. It's a, it's a deeply hurtful thing. In a very calculating way. In a very calculating way. Yeah. But um, fortunately, I had, I had good people. And because of them, I eventually graduated. But um, I encountered very different attitudes along the way. Today, I work in the busiest emergency department in the country. And I work under people that have been incredibly accepting of me along the whole way. I remember meeting um, the very first emergency physician who bought me a cup of tea, met my mom, and she asked me about my life. And she said, great, we can't wait to have you and we'll make it work. And ever since then, I've felt like a part of the family there. When I was struggling to get a job after I graduated, they, in fact, there's someone in this very room, and uh, some of them offered up their salaries to take money off the table so I could be employed. So there were people that believed in that, and today I work full-time in that department. But uh, then there were competing attitudes as well along the way. So once I came across, uh, I was going to rotate as a junior doctor to a department that was, uh, that is a specialty that is not very physical at all. So 
the doctors there work at a desk um, and they uh, use a computer for their work. But uh, the leadership of that department gave me a call one day and they said, look, we just cannot have a person with a spinal cord injury in our department. So if you ever want to work here, you do have to work for free or find your own money to do it. And uh, then they said, you cannot tell anyone that I told you this either. So, so here we words, are. In other words, I didn't say it. Yeah. Um, so there, there, were, there were attitudes like that along the way. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was another, wasn't there, who essentially said also in a private call, um, we can't have you taking a job from an able-bodied person. Yeah. So this was in my first or second year as a doctor. I had, uh, there was someone, there was a person who looked after all the junior doctors at the time. And uh, one evening, uh, about 6 or 7 p.m., they gave me a call and they said, uh, I'm just driving, but I thought I'd give you a call to discuss your future. And I said, okay, I mean, it's a bit weird. Never really talked to you much, but... Uh, and then we had a chat and he said, look, I think for your future, it's unfair that you take a job away from someone who's able-bodied uh, to do clinical medicine. So you should consider um, letting other people do that and doing something non-clinical like uh, research or education or something. But uh, I think you should leave it to someone who doesn't have a disability. Does it jar when, and, and I know that the terminology around disability is difficult because the term disable is a negative connotation, dis, not able. So when somebody says directly applies able-bodied as the opposite of you, does that jar? The word disabled is uh, a very contentious word in the community. There's a part of the community that says, well, it's not, it's not a bad word and you should be able to say disability without any, uh, any issue and it should be a positive thing. And then there are parts of the community that say it shouldn't. And then there are parts of the community that uh, use terms like differently abled. For example, in Sri Lanka, that's the preferred term, but then uh, in Australia it's found to be offensive. So there are different words. But I guess in the traditional sense of the word, do I feel disabled? Not really, because uh, 11 years after the accident, um, I'm sitting on a stage here talking to Kerry O'Brien. <laughs> so that, uh, that could be described as a disability. <laughs> um, yes. So I've, I've, I've never... I've never really felt any less able, mm. really. I mean, uh, before the... I feel like I've done more after the accident happened than I ever have before in my life. So when there is something that physically you cannot do, there must be some things in your, in your practice in an emergency department uh, that another doctor may be able to do that you have to find a way around. But I'm assuming that you do just find a way around. Rectal exams. Are, yeah. <laughs> so, so there are some things that it's an advantage not to have to do. Exactly. Well, the thing is, we have hundreds of patients come through this emergency department, and uh, 
not all of them, and in fact, many of them don't need any physical things done to them. Uh, I can use a stethoscope, I can examine someone's abdomen, I can see if someone's uh, neurological system's working properly. So there are plenty of patients for me to see, and by and large, I'm independent. So um, any patient who needs a procedure or something complex, I, there, are, there are other doctors yeah. that are willing to jump at the chance. Are you a better doctor now for having experienced what it was like to be an extremely vulnerable patient? Definitely. I think back to when I was a medical student before the accident happened, and I think you get into this zone sometimes when you're a junior doctor where you're just going through the... It's, it's about the paperwork, it's about the list of jobs that you have to do through the day, and you get into the minutiae of medicine and you get into the... Uh, you become a part of the machine and it's easy to forget the patient. But I was the patient. And being the patient is incredibly scary. It's disempowering. It's... it's uh, <sighs> I work in the emergency department today but I will not go to a hospital unless I'm dying. (laughs) And that's interesting, isn't it? Like, there's this place. It's like a pilot saying, I wouldn't want to be a passenger in the plane. (laughs) But it's because I I just have... I just remember what it was like. And um, I I just hated it so much. I think think it's different, isn't it, than being a pilot uh, as a passenger? Because as a patient, you, you... it, it was absolutely fundamentally important to you on, on many levels, I would imagine, just the straight clinical level, um, the fear of something going wrong. But then at the emotional level, to be treated as a human, to be treated with compassion, to be treated with dignity. I didn't often felt, feel that way. Um, I mean, I was in... For a period of time, I was in a unit where I was sharing a room with three other people. And I think uh, when illness sometimes happens, it's a great equaliser because you get everyone from all walks of life thrown into this one situation. And it was hard because there were some people that were angry, throwing things around at night, threatening to kill me sometimes. And then... uh, through the morning you go to, for example, you go to the shower and there's human waste everywhere. There's, there was a lot that was undignified about that experience. Um, and it, it just, I just didn't, didn't want to be in that situation again. But the good thing that came out of it was I remember what it was like and I think of that experience when I see my own patients today and... A lot of the interactions that I've had that have been memorable, and I've read some, um, I've read some things that people have written online after seeing me in the emergency department. You know, it's not the medical care itself. It's like the chat that we had or it's the cup of tea that you can get them. It's those simple things that make someone feel like a human being, that make someone feel dignified and cared for. Those are the powerful things that matter. Mm. Hippocrates, he of the Hippocratic Oath, observed that wherever the art of medicine is loved, 
there is also a love of humanity. Does it surprise you how often empathy can go missing in that relationship between doctor and patient? Absolutely. And I think that's, again, a part of the machinery that becomes medicine. Because there's so much going on and there's so much uh, happening and people... It's easy to shift your mindset into the, into the workings of a hospital rather than the patient. Because the patient has to be the centre of everything that we do. But I think it's also a part of reminding ourselves why we became doctors. For me, it was to do something for my fellow human. But there has to be a love of humanity in what we do because otherwise you just uh, end up doing more damage than good, I think. And I can't agree with Hippocrates more. Mm. Well, there are many strands these days to what you do, and one of them is you teach. Can you teach empathy? And I wonder when you look out at your students, and I won't ask you to comment, well, obviously you won't comment specifically, but, but when, you, when you see the students occupying those seats that you occupied as a student yourself, and you can see the ones who have the empathy, naturally, the ones who feel that love of humanity and those that might struggle to be able to feel that or articulate that, and you must wonder at times about the selection processes and, and how many students are delivered into medical schools who actually do have the requisite skills beyond just being good practitioners of medicine. Yeah, I think the, we have to do that at the selection, right? Uh, I'm not sure, and we, there's a lot of work that happens in medical schools to teach empathy to teach communication, to teach how to connect with people because that's so, so important. But I don't know how easy it is to teach that and I don't know how easy it is to understand that. If you unless... don't have it innately. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I think a large part of it comes to uh, the selection process and we have to look at why, why does someone want to be a doctor? And, uh, There's more to it than just being the brightest person in the room. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it, is important to have, um, it is important to have people that can connect with patients, that can understand. Medicine goes beyond, um, even beyond the human-human interactions that we have because we're a part of conversations too. For example, right now there's a conversation about voluntary assisted dying. So the medical profession is a part of that conversation. But if you don't have empathy for the people that are going through these processes, I wonder how much you can actually contribute meaningfully to those conversations. But I think it's about picking the right people at the start, understanding why they want to be a doctor and making sure that they have the right motivations. When we put together all of the elements that helped you build a new future after the accident, they're really quite considerable. You already had a law degree which gave you the confidence to advocate for yourself. You had an incredibly determined, capable and inspirational mother. You had demonstrated real ability and capacity at medical school before the accident and subsequently that helped give you access back into that career. And you passed your course with flying colours. You also found important support in the medical profession and in the media when a hospital job couldn't be found for you. 
and you had a strong desire to beat the odds. Now, not everyone with serious disability can be expected to summon all those resources, uh, can they, to meet those challenges, in which case, what happens to them? And this is why I feel I have a responsibility to tell the story, to talk about it, to be a part of the things like the Disability Royal Commission, because the reality is there are so many people without voices. There are so many disparities in people with disabilities. There's a health disparity, education, employment. But all these things also mean that there's uh, difficulty in accessing advocacy, difficulty in having a voice. For example, if uh, people have difficulty with the NDIS, the NDIS commands the law firm Minter Ellison, one of the biggest law firms in the country, with innumerable resources. How is someone from uh, a country town undergoing a significant disability, already marginalised, going to fight that machine? It's going to be difficult. So there are a lot of people that don't have voices, but I think it's important for those that do have voices to tell the stories, to advocate for them. And I get emails all the time from people that are going through difficult times. Uh, and I, I always take the time to do something about it. But it's important to have allies as well. And I've had allies. They haven't had a disability themselves, but they saw the value in being an ally. And I think having allies for whatever we do matters. So if you see something that's going on that's unjust, mm. that uh, seems immoral, then I think uh, speak up. And that's how, we, that's how we have a voice for the people that don't. You, um, you are an example um, of, of a person whose life could so much have gone the other way and the potential that you have now been fulfilling and will continue to fulfil is known and it's seen and it's there. You must wonder, we all should wonder, how much untapped potential there is out there locked up in people with disability because of attitude. Absolutely. There's, uh, um, I've actually been telling uh, anyone that does an introduction to me to introduce me as the Australia's most handsome doctor, but no one's, <laughs> no one's done that yet. But uh, that's the only untapped potential that I'm trying to get into. But, but uh, we've seen what people can do. Dylan Alcott just won the Golden Slam. The Paralympics have such a strong viewership, and we see people in the Paralympics doing amazing things. Uh, we see journalists like Nas Campanella. Um, we see all sorts of people doing amazing things around this world. So, but we need to give people a chance. And that, that's, if we break down everything, if we break, down, break it down from all the laws, all the treaties, everything that we have, we just need to enable people and we need to give them a chance because I had a chance and that's why I'm here today chatting with you. Mm. If we just give people a chance, if we just think beyond the barriers that we have in our heads, 
we can let people tap that potential. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, because those people you're talking about who have the barrier in their heads, they see, they see the barriers in front of you, not the barriers in front of them. Uh, in a sense, I mean, your life has become a model that others might follow, and you mentioned Dylan Alcott in the same way, as you say. We see sporting heroes like Dylan Alcott or Kurt Fernley, and as you become ambassadors, hopefully you're changing society attitudes and breaking down prejudice. But that strikes me as similar uh, to the way that Indigenous sporting heroes over many decades, like Lionel Rose as a boxer, a world champion boxer, or a, a Cathy Freeman or a Nicky Winmar or many others, were idolised, but that didn't necessarily reduce the racism or the prejudice. Maybe it's been like a slow drip, but, but in a way there's, there's an inference or an implication is that the people we're talking, that you're special. You break the mould because you've somehow risen above your disability or in their case, they've broken out of those negative stereotypes. But, but the implication is that you're different. You're not the norm. And the norm is back there. There's a, there's a kind of two-edged sword in having the heroes as examples, isn't there? Yeah, and I think... Seeing some of these things, though, the more and more we see it, the more and more it is normalised. And just storytelling is really powerful. For example, I was having a, a discussion with someone recently about intimacy and disability, and they were doing a lot of work around normalising the conversation of intimacy mm. and disability. And uh, I think having conversations, telling these things... and putting it in front of people's eyes because a lot of it is the fear of the unknown and a lot of it is thinking, okay, they're different. Um, but if we, if we tell stories and if we put it in front of people's eyes and if we uh, make it a part of society, then it becomes normal and I think that that's, that's what we need to keep doing. There have been a lot of medical students after me with various disabilities that have come. There's someone in... Uh, there's someone who just recently had a spinal cord injury, actually, but the road for them is now paved. And so it, it should, no one should have an excuse not to give them a job or put them through medical school. So paving these roads is important, I think. Mm. But, uh, of course, different types of impairment are also viewed differently by some in society. Some people with disability might be more easily embraced than others. Those with intellectual disability, for instance, can be branded as stupid or even worse, those, those pejorative terms. Yeah, and that's, that's tragic. I think um, the way we do that is a... I think it's a reflection of us in society, and if we're thinking in that way, then it's time for us to take a deep look at ourselves. But you're right, that does happen, and uh, I think that's a reflection on society. You, you gave evidence to the Royal Commission uh, into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability and they subsequently invited you to be one of their senior advisors. So, so as a senior advisor to the Commission, what are, what are the most serious concerns that you have personally expressed to the Commission? And I, I know the impact of the pandemic mm. uh, on people with disability is, is one thing, but what, what, are the, what are the key messages that you want to see that commission pursue? 
There are challenges in every aspect of life for people with disabilities. Health, education, employment, access in the community, domestic violence, financial abuse, all these things are an issue. I think the most startling thing for me over the last year, which uh, really highlights uh, society's views around the world, has been the pandemic and how people with disabilities have been treated or viewed during the pandemic. And one of the most difficult things for me to see was the value of life and how we stratify that value of life. One of the hidden things about spinal cord injury is that my, my lung function is uh, very different. It's about 35% of what's expected for someone of my characteristics. So last year we started thinking about COVID. What if I were to get COVID? It would potentially be a catastrophic event. But uh, we also started seeing reports from around the world about healthcare rationing affecting people with disabilities during COVID. And there was a flow chart that I came across from a very developed nation. And it was uh, something like complex decision-making during the pandemic for intensive care. And the first question they ask is, does this person have a disability? And it outlined a few things like Parkinson's, autism, intellectual disability. Uh, and if the answer was yes, then it goes off into a different decision tree and you could refer them to palliative care or decline intensive care or ventilation. And there were reports coming out from all around the world that people were being sent home because it's better that they die at home than in a hospital. So this was one of the things that we talked about uh, over the last year. Better that they die at home for them or better that they die at home to clear the hospital bed? Probably a bit of both, I imagine, was the mindset. I actually had a discussion with, um, with one of my best friends uh, who is a doctor, who, um, who, I have, who we've been friends for a long time, and uh, they are a decision-maker for some of these pandemic-related things. And um, they've always been very frank with me about things. And I said, look, the bottom line is we need to give ventilators for people who will survive. And that might not be you. So, uh, yeah, the, I think it was, very, it was a very confronting thing. But it, it is a topic that we tackled. But I think it fundamentally shows how we value life and how we think about people. And uh, I can't remember who said it, but uh, there's a saying where it says that a true reflection of society is how, we, how it treats its most vulnerable members. Mm. Mm. Gandhi? Gandhi, yeah. But uh, it's been a test of our humanity over the last year. How do you think we're scoring on that out of 10 at the moment? After growing up in the environment that I did, I feel incredibly lucky to be a part of this country. I think Australia has done a lot better than other parts of the world. 
I think uh, conversations like we've had at the Disability Royal Commission have contributed to rapid responses and changes. And there have been a lot of work done to uh, support people with disabilities through the pandemic. So I think we've done better than most nations, to be honest. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think we're doing, doing well so far. The British philosopher Jonathan Wolfe questions how a just and equal society should deal with disability. He asks whether society should seek to change the person or change the world. How easy should it be to bring people with disability inside the tent rather than continue to treat them as second-class citizens in the sense that Wolf is talking about, rather than put it on the person to change, to change the world around the person? To bring a person with a disability inside the tent. You know, they say uh, there's a... Japanese saying that uh, my barn having burned down, I can now see the moon. So maybe we should take the tent away and we can all see the sky. But it's about uh, inclusion and acceptance. I don't think it benefits the person themselves. It benefits the entire world. We've seen... I mean, I mean it's a big, it is a big challenge to, to actually think about what that means. Uh, when, when our cities and our towns have grown up in the way they have over centuries in some cases and buildings are old buildings and, and uh, you know, buildings might have small lifts and they might have no, chance, no room to put a ramp or whatever. But I can remember, you know, in one of the towns near where I live now, uh, there is a local guy, lovely guy, who uh, also is quadriplegic. And he also relies on a wheelchair for his access through the town. And I was standing at the top of the street and he was down the bottom of the street and, uh, and I was working my way down and I was going to talk to him when I got to him, but he disappeared. And I, tr I was trying to work out where he'd gone. And so I was looking at all of the shop fronts as I walked down the street. Um, I could tell just by a mere glance whether he would be in any of the shops because most of them he couldn't get into. So there were two shops out of about 12 on that street where a person like him could actually access it. There's a great little local general store there where he would be able to get his wheelchair access into the store, but the, but the lanes are so narrow that he'd have a great deal of trouble getting around. So when you're talking about changing the world around the person... You're talking about physically changing a great deal, aren't you? Absolutely, but... Uh, what's, the, what's the dividend? I wonder if we're thinking about this the wrong way, though. So, take going to your example about having narrow aisles in a shop. Uh, I wonder how much we pay in public liability insurance for people that slip and fall or trip on things. What if the aisles were wider? You could have more people go through. It would be safer. Um, and it would be more accessible not just for someone in a wheelchair, but for everyone. So I think we have to... Uh, and it's the same with... If you have a bigger elevator, you could fit more people in it. It might be more energy efficient. So accessibility helps everyone. It helps the elderly. It helps reduce injuries. It helps, it, it helps efficiency. So if we start to look at it, things in that way and start to see this universal design as something that benefits the whole of society, uh, I think that 
that shift in thinking makes it makes us realize that it's an investment rather than a cost. Mm. It would open up a whole new world, wouldn't it? I mean, it would create a different world. It would, it would create, create a more complete world for us all. Absolutely. And look, the thing is, it could be any one of us that experiences these things. You know, the, the amount of people that we see in the emergency department, they wake up one morning and they're going about their life and then they have a stroke. Or we all get, we all age, we all get elderly and uh, our physical capacities change. So it could be anyone. And there's a large part of the Australian population that's affected by something like this. Mm. But also if you, if you don't have any of these things affecting you, it still makes it more accessible. Um, so... I think just that thinking, it, it, it changes the world in, in a better way. Uh, I look at, uh, at your story, Dinesh, and, uh, and I see three areas uh, where prejudice applies. Um, I'd be surprised uh, if you haven't at different points experienced racism. Uh, you've experienced what it's like to suffer a mental illness and you now spend your life in a wheelchair. I wonder if you've thought about the nature of prejudice and, and what, it, what, what it represents and, and how best to respond to prejudice. How do, you, how do you deal with prejudice? How do you turn prejudice around? Funnily enough, Earlier this year, um, I was at an event and someone said, geez, you've, uh, you've had depression, you have a disability, and you're a migrant. You tick so many boxes. <laughs> Should be a shoe-in for awards. Uh, but You missed out on the one about coming by boat. Yeah. <laughs> you arrived on a plane with a visa. <laughs> uh, but... I actually, being a migrant has never entered my mind until that point. Yeah. Interesting enough, I've, I've felt like a part of, uh, I've, I've very much felt like a part of Australia. I think one of the advantages that I've had is that uh, as soon as we moved to Australia, we lived in Byron Bay and it was a very little town. Uh, everyone was very accepting and I was able to, you know, I just felt like home. So I think that held me in good stead. And there are two ways in which uh, I've dealt with prejudice. One is I've got very annoyed and agitated and I've just fought back. I mean, some of these things you just have to fight back, right? Um, it's also... But to get to that point, it's been a graded approach. First, I try to talk to people and talk through... Um, if they're fearful about something or if they think that something might be a barrier, the first step is just to start a conversation. And uh, often through, through having those conversations and through interacting, people realise that, wait a sec, what I thought wasn't correct at all. One of the, one of the big things was... Uh, one of the most memorable things for me was when I was in my first year as a doctor... 
I rotated through a certain department, and there was a very senior, terrifying doctor. And uh, I went through this term, and at the end of it, we sat down and had a chat. And they said, uh, when I first heard that you were coming to our department, I had so many thoughts. I didn't think that it would work. I was uh, skeptical. And um, I, I just had all these different ideas. But today, after spending a couple of months with you, my thoughts about what medicine should look like, what a doctor needs to look like, are different. And I'm ashamed that I thought that way. And uh, that, that conversation just really sticks in my mind. But it's an example, isn't it? Because we all fear things in our heads. But if we face that... And if we interact with that and if we talk to that, then it, then it doesn't become a fear at all. So I think, um, I think just really just engaging and understanding is one of the big steps. But failing all that, I just get angry. <laughs> <laughs> I want to spend the time that's left talking about the spinal cord research that you're now heavily involved in. Um, what, what is the promise of that research? How real is the promise of that research? Well, we talked about hope earlier. And hope is everything. In everything that we do as humanity, we, we, we keep going because there's a hope for ourselves, for a better tomorrow, hope for a better life, hope for a better world. And it's the same with spinal cord injury. The moment this happened, I started looking around at all the different bits of research that was happening and thinking about, will I stand up again? Will I walk again? The very last thing I did standing up was to give my mum a hug. So we had to hug the people that we love. I think that's really important. So I gave my mum a hug and then stepped into the car, and that was it. Uh, but I started looking at all these science, and I think what we understand about the brain and spinal cord is so... Uh, there's, there's, there's a whole world in there, and there's so much we don't understand. But over the years, there's been some incredible advances, some with uh, stem cells. Uh, and the other interesting bit of science that came out was using electrical stimulation and also a thought control. Because if you think about rehabilitation, it's a very passive process to date. But using thought control where uh, we have a headset that can actually read my thoughts. And... I do hope you control your thoughts. Exactly. <laughs> Be very embarrassed. Uh, but it essentially, I have to think about walking. Or I have to think about moving my legs. And we have equipment that zaps my legs into action. So that's a very active process of rehabilitation. And uh, we used some drug therapy. Um, not the type from Byron Bay, but uh, other therapeutic stuff. And uh, some of the science around the world has shown, and it's been amazing, actually, for the first time in human history, we've seen people start to move again that have been paralyzed for years. So this is what we're doing, and uh, it's really... Exciting. I am the guinea pig. 
And I hope to one day, maybe I'll stand on this stage and have another chat with you. That's the hope. And, and how, how strongly do you feel, how, how strongly are you invested in the hope, in the sense that behind the hope um, th there is a possibility, that you actually do see a possibility? Um, it's the big, big dream. It's the big dream. In my first year of medical school, I went to a lecture by Graham Clark, who was the inventor of the cochlear implant. And he talked about his journey. He was a surgeon that had a practice and a family, but he made a lot of sacrifices uh, early on because he believed and he wanted people to hear again. So he gave up financial security and uh, there was a period of time somewhere along that journey where he was collecting money um, with a tin on the street, I think some people were. And the technology wasn't there and it was, you know, it was decades ago. But he kept persisting and he kept, uh, kept this dream alive and he kept at it. And today, people can enjoy the cochlear implant and hear again. So I think we have to dream big and we have to persist and we have to keep going. There are so many dreamers around the world. Uh, we've had people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and all these people that have changed how our society is. So I have a big dream too, and uh, I am confident. Mm. And of course, research is a, is, a, is a mixed story in Australia too. Uh, medical research, I've had some insight to medical research and the extent to which um, those people with those dreams have to go so often cap in hand and how the researchers working in so many parts of the medical um, science field uh, are working from three month to three month, not knowing whether they're going to be able to finish their project because the money might run out. Um, that is such a depressing story when you hear it and when you see it in a country that has such, such uh, wealth. Yeah, I have three thoughts about that. With our own research, I've been lucky enough to have a team that are very passionate. Um, they have been friends. They have, they're so invested in this work. And uh, we do it, we have fun, we have, there's a love for it or we do it, and that makes a difference. So that helps us overcome some of these barriers that we face. Um, secondly, I think there's an attitude that Australia can't. When I first started talking to a very prominent doctor about this research, he said, we just can't do that in this country. We need to look to the US or UK. And I was really dejected. I remember that conversation. I thought, ah, oh, this is... So this country has produced amazing things across so many fields. Exactly. But we need to start believing that and we need to know that we are capable. We're well-resourced. We're an economic powerhouse. We have so much science and capability in this nation to do everything. We can change the world. So we need to start believing that. And thirdly, we need to look at new economies. And this is what research is about. If we start creating these technologies in our home, it uh, provides us an economic future as well. And uh, I think these are the reflections that I have on research. But we, we, we have the capability to do that. 
Dinesh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to A Better Future for All in conversation with Kerry O'Brien from Griffith University. Produced by Eddie Nalwafer and edited by Michael Adams and Andrew Thompson. Visit betterfuture.griffith.edu.au to keep up to date with our upcoming events or catch up on our past events on demand. <laughs>